Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, journalists, entrepreneurs, and more about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in the modern world. I am Princeton freshman Nathan Shin. Uh, with us today, Dr. Jean Hébert is a professor at the Dominic P. Purpura Department of Neuroscience at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He is also a professor in the Department of Genetics and has conducted research uh, that has been published in renowned journals such as Science. His current scope of research um, in the Hebert lab includes devising methods of cell replacement for the adult neocortex after cell damage or age-related degeneration. I would like to introduce my co-host, Aditya Golapudi from Envision, and this interview marks another collaboration between Policy Punchline and Envision. Um, firstly, could you please describe uh, to us some of your research and what the Hebert lab does? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. My lab is uh, focused now uh, entirely on devising methods of replacing cells and tissue in the brain uh, for the purpose of repair, um, which can be for all different forms of damage, acute forms of damage like stroke or penetrating injuries or aneurysms or the, the hole that's left after resecting uh, benign tumors, for example or chronic long-term degeneration, uh, such as Alzheimer's and aging. So we're, we're particularly interested in aging as well and combating dementia that occurs uh, as we get older, unfortunately. Um, brief glance at your like, research page. It shows that you work a lot with the uh, region called the neocortex. Uh, would you briefly describe what this region is, what its functions are, why it's important, why yeah, you choose to study it so carefully? Yeah, so you know we can't work on fixing everything. So we decided to focus on the tissue that we think is the most important uh, to us as individuals. The neocortex is the outer part of the brain that we think of when we image a human, when we have an image in our mind of a human brain. It's the outer folded tissue, and this part of the brain um, houses our highest cognitive functions, our memories, long-term memories. It's it, um, a lot of our personality and how we think, uh, our consciousness. Um, and so it really defines who we are as individuals. Uh, it also defines who we are as a species because um, our, our, uh, the ratio of size of our neocortex to the rest of the body is, is disproportionately large compared to other species. Um, of mammals. So it also defines us as a class of animals since only mammals have a neocortex. So, um, you know, for these reasons, uh, we, we think the neocortex is um, important, particularly because we use it to think. Uh, and, you know, and, and as it deteriorates with age, it's pretty devastating if you've had members of your family who are of advanced age and you know, you could just tell they're slowly disappearing. Um, and, and so we think uh, it's possible to completely reverse that process. So as you said, the neocortex sort of helps define who we are as a person. It, it helps make, you know, each of us different from one another. And you're talking about doing cell replacement. Is there any risk that someone goes through this procedure and then comes out someone different, not the same person who went in where rather than restoring the human that was once there, you've created a new one in essence. Yeah, so that's a very important point. And 
all the the ability to um, reverse aging of the neocortex is based on a couple of principles. One of them is plasticity. The neocortex is very plastic. Um, one could ask, you know, even without any manipulations to our neocortex, are we the same person we were, you know, five years ago or 25 years ago? And, and you might answer that yes, you might answer that no, depending on, on how you define the same. Um, so, so this plasticity is going on whether or not we, we decide to uh, try to uh, reverse uh, you know, the, the, the cognitive, uh, cognitive deficits that occur with age, which, which really occur because of a degradation of the tissue. The neocortex, the neurons in the neocortex um, lose their complexity they become much more simple in their projection patterns, uh, which you know doesn't allow as much information content. Um, so what we're doing uh, is, in a way, providing uh, a lot of uh, opportunity for plasticity. So if you're uh, treating, for example, an acute form of damage like stroke, um, in that case, you've already lost whatever was encoded in that tissue that just died, right? Uh, so in that case, what we'd be doing is just providing uh, a tissue that resembles, you know, the, the neocortex of a newborn. And, and we know how easily newborns or, you know, one-year-olds or two-year-olds absorb things. They learn so quickly, like language, for example. So that level of plasticity um, would be very advantageous to a person who's had a stroke and can no longer talk or you know, has lost movement in one side of their body. Uh, so they could relearn very quickly. For aging, it is a little different in that you don't want to lose you know, who you are. Um, but again, because of this principle of plasticity, uh, you don't have to. And I'll give you a couple of examples of just how plastic the neocortex is, even in, this, these are examples in humans. Uh, it's very well documented animal models, and it has been for decades. But my favorite examples are in humans. Uh, for example, with the growth of benign gliomas that they can occur anywhere, but when they occur in the language center, over the course of five years, they destroy the language center. But it's progressive. Unlike stroke, which is a catastrophic event, uh, there's no time for plasticity. These slow growing benign gliomas uh, take a much longer time. And even after, so, so, but the individuals can still speak the whole time. They don't lose their ability to speak, even though the language center is destroyed. And even after they resect the tumor out with surrounding tissue for good measure, the patients can still speak normally. They never noticed, uh, you know, a, a, a disruption in their speech. They're, the people closest to them never noticed the difference. So that, you know, addresses directly your question of, of you know, do you come out different the other side? Um, not necessarily. I mean, if you do this, these uh, tissue replacements progressively over time, allowing plasticity to move substrates from a deteriorating substrate to uh, a new substrate, then um, you don't necessarily lose um, anything. Um, Although, again, you might be a little different, just like you are a little different from day to day as you learn things and forget other things, right? This is going on all the time. Um, so this is just sort of, um, you know, uh, 
giving you additional substrate, especially when you're old. So the second example I like is, is in very old individuals that are considered high performing. If you look by functional MRI at how their neocortex works, it's, it's using broader and broader areas of the neocortex to perform routine functions. And that's because the substrate is deteriorating and this, and the neocortex is the second principle of the neocortex in addition to plasticity is you use substrate for what you need it, you know, and what you repeatedly use it for. Uh, and so if your substrate is deteriorating, these elderly individuals are using broader areas for routine functions, where if you compare that to a young adult, everything is very compartmentalized. All of the functions are, are much more compartmentalized. But an old person uh, you know, has to use everything they have there for simple routine tasks. And, and so they're just dying for new substrate. And, and so to start with, putting in new neocortical tissue would allow them uh, you know, to, to gain function, to, you know, be able to perform much better um, because they you know, that new substrate will have uh, a lot more connections. Um, but then eventually, so it's a little more complicated because eventually you do want to get rid of the old tissue as well. So in our protocol, and this is down the road a little compared to applications for stroke, which we think we can get to relatively quickly, but for aging, you, you want to remove the old substrates. And I think you can do that without losing any memories, just uh, like uh, what occurs with the slow-growing benign gliomas. You completely lost the original language center, but you never lost the ability to speak, right? Because of that progressive, um, in that case, destruction of the tissue. So there are modern ways where we can uh, progressively silence a tissue over time um, making it essentially, you know, physiologically dead uh, as the function moves to a new place, a new substrate, uh, and then we can remove the old substrate without loss of any function. So hopefully that made sense. That was a pretty long answer to your question. Yeah. When you say when you say plasticity, I think like immediately of synaptic plasticity, um, for example, like in the mesolimbic pathway, which is like the reward uh, pathway, and that's like developed pretty early on and it's more like impressionable as a young, well, when you're, when you're younger, as you mentioned. Um, so if you are, if you are introducing new tissue or like very plastic, um, like a new neocortex, for example, uh, is it true that your like personality or your cognition would also be more like impressionable? Uh, yeah. I hope that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's, that, that's also a very good question is, you know, at what rate do you want to uh, add new tissue? You don't want to revert to being like, uh, right. <laughs> girl, which would be great for learning new things, but you might lose a lot of who you were. So, you know, the rate at which this replacement uh, would need to occur would, would to some extent be based on what we know about plasticity, um, the rate of, of acquisition of, um, you know, more mature functions and, and uh, adjust silencing rates and, and amount of, of tissue that's replaced over time. Uh, but yeah, you know, it, right, it's an open question. Of, uh, th there's gonna be a balance, right? Not too mm -hmm. fast and, and obviously not too slow because you don't want aging to outpace the uh, replacement. And you wanna be able to do the replacement. Uh, you know, we estimate that within uh, 
around 25 years, you could replace either the entire neocortex without uh, loss of who you are. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, that would give you another 50 years of not having to do this, just living with your new rejuvenated neocortex, for example, or even longer, because, you know, there are other aging manipulations that might improve this to some extent uh, as well. So yeah, and plasticity, yeah, it occurs at the synaptic level, uh, but it, you know, even that, it, there are different forms of plasticity, the strength of synapses versus uh, the pruning um, and growth of new synapses. Um, but it also, you know, as you're younger, you, you also have projections that provide a lot of synaptic plasticity. You have exuberant projections that get pruned and grow and so there's different levels of plasticity as well. Yeah. So just to rewind, your lab mostly focuses on cell replacement when cells are lost either to damage or deteriorating through, through age. Is this just the most promising avenue that's existed or is the idea that it's most powerful? Because you could imagine, for example, that preventing the deterioration in the first place could be another avenue. Yeah, you know, I and we, I thought about this for a long time before deciding to go into cell replacement as opposed to some of those other approaches. Uh, but it's really daunting to think of, of trying to uh, slow the, the um, everything that goes wrong uh, with in the aging brain. And there's a lot of um, damage that occurs to macromolecules over time. It's the, there's not like a simple thing that you can do to try to slow or stem the tide of aging uh, anywhere in the body, but particularly in the brain, which is much more inaccessible to biologics or, or even drugs don't necessarily penetrate very well. Um, so it's very difficult to imagine how you could slow that down. I mean, we're seeing how difficult it is with Alzheimer's, right? There, in some cases, I mean, Alzheimer's itself is, is a very complicated disease. Uh, it's also occurring in an old brain, which makes it almost, I think, very difficult to address with uh, anything other than, than cell replacement. Um, you know, th there's the issue of the vasculature, the inflammation, the, the protein aggregates. I mean, if you ask five different Alzheimer researchers what Alzheimer's is, they'll give you five different answers based on their area of interest in Alzheimer's. And aging is just even worse. Like everything is going downhill. So, um, you know, there's no metabolic approach that's going to help. You know, I know that's a very popular focus um, because a lot of these forms of damage are not, um, relevant to metabolism, their you know, accumulation of damage and proteins that don't get turned over, for example, whatever you do to metabolism, metabolism is not necessarily gonna help that. And a lot of them are extracellular. So you know, all these metabolic approaches or epigenetic approaches don't necessarily affect the extracellular environment. Um, and usually don't, unless you're in a place where you've removed the extracellular environment and then cells are triggered to produce a new one. Um, in that case, but then you're already starting to talk about replacement. Um, so the, the easiest thing is just to replace uh, tissue. I think that will be what will work um, sooner 
than any other approach, and in the end, better than any other approach. Sort of to build on top of that, dying of old age is not some well-defined medical term. It's you know a bunch of systems and predictions about deteriorating over time from the brain to the hearts to everything. Right. right now, it appears that the focus is primarily on the neo on the brain and the neocortex specifically. Do you imagine that the cell replacement can be extended to other regions where you could have fairly arbitrary life extension, or is this mostly just about preserving neurological function until you die of something else? Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, having a rejuvenated brain in an old body is, you know, is going to allow you to function cognitively much better until, you know, the day you die, which is not going to be much longer than what you would have lived anyways, because exactly as you say, the heart gives out, the lungs give out, the kidneys give out, you know, everything gives out as you age. Um, and so uh, the only way to uh, beat aging in that sense, not just, you know, being able to um, function cognitively at a high level until something else gives out uh, is to, to do the same types of therapies for the rest of the body. So replacement therapies for the rest of the body. Um, I think those are possible. So, you know, in the end, I, I really believe that we are going to uh, defeat aging and we're going to do it with replacements. Um, so for the, all the other body parts, you know, have already been replaced surgically in humans, not by lab grown um, tissues and organs, but usually from deceased individuals. So that's not a viable source to reverse aging, but it, it does show that it can be implemented. So, so surgically, every part of the body, like, you know, I wrote a book on this and I was just amazed at when I looked out you know, I was trying to find parts of the body that had not been surgically replaced and could not find any, you know, so all the internal organs, you know, all the parts of the, except of the head, except the brain had been replaced, you know, the flank, arms, uh, you know, you name it. So, um, so, so it, you know, replacements are implementable. What's missing are uh, good lab grown uh, organs and body parts and, and, there are lots of people working on this and, and their, their use in the clinic is increasing, not, not for aging, but to repair traumatic injury uh, or to cure certain diseases. Um, and so, um, you know, a really good example of that is uh, the group that Anthony Atala heads at Wake Forest, you know, the regenerative medicine. They're working on, I think, at least 40 different uh, body parts and organs. Uh, and some of which they're putting in humans. And, you know, uh, their earliest example is the lab-grown bladders, grown from a patient's own uh, stem cells. And they've been functioning in humans for over 15 years. So, you know, it's going to get there. So we're going we're gonna to get to a point where, you know, society is going to have to deal with the, the, the possibility that, you know, so we could uh, avoid aging using these tissue replacements and organ replacements. There are also, you know, not just biological replacements, but um, prosthetic replacements are also uh, improving tremendously uh, for, organ, for organs, but obviously also for the limbs. I mean, uh, you know, I saw somebody running upstairs with a completely artificial limb and it looked completely like natural motion. 
Um, so that's really impressive. And of course, those are easily replaceable, I guess. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, if you were descri uh, to describe like the, limit, the limiting factor in the field at the moment, would you say it's in um, like the mapping, so like the understanding of the neurons and the pathways and which ones to alter, um, the, like the uh, tooling, so your ability to actually do the change like physically, um, or maybe even potentially policy, such as like the ethical side of the medical procedures you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, those are good points. Um, I'll start with the sort of the science side of it, right? What is, uh, it, it is certainly a worry that um, putting in this new tissue that it might not be wired normally and that could cause more problems than do good, right? So we have to be very conscious of that. What we've seen so far in animal models is, is what we would want to see. Things get wired normally, even though we transplant in the adult. And I think this is, you know, um, addresses this, this common misinterpretation that we have to understand completely how the brain is wired if we're going to put in new tissues that need to be rewired. And that's not true, I think, because we don't know how it's wired in the first place during development, but those cells know what they're supposed to do and they do it. And when we put them in the adult, in the adult environment, they still seem to know what they're supposed to do and do it. Um, and so we don't necessarily understand how they do it or what the signals are or you know, how they come to be wired um, but as long as they do it, uh, you know, we might be okay. There could be, you know, until we, you know, analyze this in more detail, there, sure, there could be um, issues that we'll need to adjust in terms of the wiring. So I think the, the biggest um, uh, roadblock to getting there right now is funding, um, you know, and, and that's why I've become more vocal about it because particularly for aging, um, because um, there's billions of dollars being poured into, you know, drug development to fight aging and, and similar approaches. And I really think that, you know, that people are looking for magic bullets with these approaches. And this money is, could be better spent on regenerative medicine. Um, and right now for regenerative medicine, you know, there is funding but it's not to the same scale as, as goes into the longevity research field. And, and I think that, you know, it's like in our lab, but this is generalizable, I think. When we try to do something, we, we don't have the resources to try different things in parallel. Instead, we have to try them in sequence. Now, obviously that, you know, if you want to try 10 things, that takes 10 times longer. And so if you, if you want to speed things up, we need more people working on the, the different approaches uh, to, to accelerate things. And then you mentioned the social aspect. I, I have a feeling that is going to be an issue, but you know, people, even though some of us are saying, yes, it's going to happen, uh, I don't think it's really caught on yet with the, most people. Uh, they don't realize that, that we are going to get to a point where we can defeat aging. And, and so at some point, you know, more people are going to realize this and there will have to be, a, you know, an open discussion about, you know, how do we make this fair? Uh, how do we make it part of, you know, the, a healthcare system that everyone can benefit from? Already, you know, there's so much inequity in, in healthcare. Uh, so, so this problem is much bigger than just, you know, rejuvenative uh, therapies for rejuvenation. 
uh, it, it's already exists as a problem for healthcare today. Uh, but we should definitely address that. Yeah, and I think like on that front, like cell replacement, I doubt is particularly inexpensive. And the structure of, of how it's happening is presumably requires, at least for now, a lot of highly skilled labor in addition to whatever the cost of, you know, growing the, growing the cells themselves is. Uh, and you talk about integrating into a broader system. Do you imagine this set of techniques becoming sufficiently inexpensive and accessible that it could be the case where every person lives to 200? Or do you imagine this being used mostly for you know, one, special stroke victims, and perhaps those who are wealthy enough to afford the very expensive treatment. Yeah, well, I hope it's the former where, you know, people get to use it. Uh, anybody who wants to uh, live, you know, well beyond 100 has that choice. Um, in terms of the, again, you know, I'm not an economist, but in hearing others speak about this in the longevity space, um, it seems like a longer term outlook uh, tells you that even though the costs up front uh, are very high, that in the end it pays off because the amount of money that is spent now dealing with um, all the ages, uh, all the diseases of old age for decades, you know, in, in the older population uh, is, is way more expensive than paying for what would appear to be these expensive treatments up front, but then allow those people to continue working and being productive members of society, uh, and, you know, paying taxes, putting in instead of taking out uh, for those decades that they would otherwise be taking out in terms of uh, healthcare costs and, and uh, social uh, support. So, um, so again, I'm not an economist, but I'm told it's actually cheaper to do this than to not do it in the long run. So if you have the, if, if you analyze it, but again, you got to convince people that this is the case. Um, going back uh, a little bit to the science of the grafting process, could you explain a little bit how, well, how new cells are integrated into like a pre-existing system? It seems uh, pretty, pretty magical. I know you mentioned that on the cells they kind of know what to do if they're introduced to the right uh, environment, but still you must, um, you must have like the right conditions or you must um, be manipulating such that they have a higher success of, of doing what you want them to do. Yeah, so, I mean, so the, a, lot, a lot of labs have shown this, um, but they've done it in sort of a crude way where they just inject cells, either mouse uh, precursors, neocortical precursors or human neocortical precursors in the adult mouse sometimes even under disease conditions. Um, and and those neuro, the, the precursors give rise to neurons that project um, really well to targets. They become synaptically integrated, um, you know, but, but there's still more to be done, right? They haven't looked at all the connections. Um, there's a lot of input into grafted neurons that no one's really looked at yet. Um, that would, should normally be there. So the cortex, as well as projecting to, to a lot of parts of the brain, all which have been looked at, and projections have been looked at a lot, but they also receive input from different parts of the brain. And that's really important for how the neocortex functions. They receive, although the neocortex doesn't have dopaminergic, serotonergic, or cholinergic neurons, they receive inputs from other parts of the brain uh, that's, that 
use these neurotransmitters uh, and that project to, to the cortex. And these connections, for example, as far as I know, no one's looked at yet in, in grafted neurons. So, um, so although the evidence so far is really good in mouse that the grafted neurons themselves go where they're supposed to, for example, if you put them in motor cortex, they project the spinal cord, if you put them in visual cortex, they project to the colliculi, which is a, a visual uh, target for these neurons. So they, they look really good. And, and an early, one of the earlier uh, papers for this for, is from um, yeah, Faulkner et al. in 2016, uh, I think it's October 2016 in Nature. That was one of the nicest up till that point, although there were a few labs that had reported uh, partial findings before that. But that's really, um, I think a, a nice, um, example of how well the neurons can do. But despite that, you know, there's still a lot of things that we need to look at. And we, we, we observed the same thing. Um, I, you know, to, to be honest, like we first did these transplants before that paper came out, for example. And I spent a day at the microscope just admiring how these projections, you know, grew in the adult environment. Cause not that long ago, right? Everybody thought that the adult environment precludes axon growth, but it only precludes axon growth from very mature neurons. If you put in the young neurons, it doesn't apply, it seems. Um, so that was a really pleasant surprise. I mean, that really made my day. <laughs> and, and since then, you know, we've uh, characterized the, the synaptic connectivity of our grafted neurons, as has many other labs. Um, but to ensure a proper engraftment and function, you need more than just those long-range projection neurons. You need the interneurons that modulate their, their activity. You need, you know, to support bigger grafts, you need vasculature, you need the support cells, astrocytes, uh, oligodendrocytes, microglia, all play essential roles in, um, in the function, neuron function. And so I think, you know, and the blood-brain barrier is really important too. Uh, even if you are managed to get vasculature, it has to, it has to be uh, tight and, and form a blood-brain barrier. So there's still a lot of things that need to be looked at before we can say we you know, have what looks like functional tissue. But this is all just technical problems that you know, we should be able to overcome. Um, yeah, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your lab works with mice uh, quite a bit. Um, how analogous are mice like neocortices or brains in general um, to humans and like how confident are scientists that we can commute whatever we, like results we find from mice to humans? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question as well. So mice have a neocortex that is structured like a human neocortex in the sense that all the layers of neurons in the neocortex, so the, the neocortex is a layered structure uh, those layers exist in mice as well. Uh, the aerial organization of the neocortex is similar also across all mammals. Uh, for example, you know, you, you have the motor cortex up here, uh, visual cortex back here, auditory cortex here. That arrangement is conserved across mammalian species. Um, but there are a few differences um, in terms of the biology and, and the anatomy. The humans, um, in particular, we have a lot of what is called associative cortex, uh, as opposed to primary cortex. So you have primary visual cortex, 
And in mouse, you have mostly just primary cortices. In humans, you have a lot more associative cortex. That's one difference. Uh, in terms of the stem cells, the precursors that generate the neocortex, there's also, you know, uh, an extra wave of, of um, neurogenic precursors called these outer radioglia that, that exist as well. Uh, just because we have such a bigger neocortex, you need more of these. So developmentally, there's a, you know, uh, an extension of, of proliferation and growth in that sense. Uh, but, but the biggest difference, you know, in case it's not obvious, is size, <laughs> right? The mouse neocortex, is flat because you know uh, it doesn't need to be folded to fit in the mouse skull. It's about a square centimeter, uh, whereas uh, the, the the human neocortex is, if you flatten it out, it's like a, not quite a square meter, but it, it, it's approaching that. Um, and so, us uh, you know, one issue, and we have a project um, underway to test this is to see how well um, projections in a bigger brain uh, form from graphs. And I think that's a really important question. So yeah, in, in mice, human neurons can project to the spinal cord, but again, that's a pretty short distance. Can they do that in a bigger mammal? Um, so we have a project underway to test that. We also have a project uh, to test function. So to really prove that grafted tissue can underlie by its physiological activity, a useful behavior to the recipient. And for that, you know, we're using um, the modern tools of, um, uh, I don't know if you've heard of uh, chemogenetics. So these uh, designer receptors exclusively activated by designer drugs, the dreads, um, so you can silence or activate neurons at will. And so what we're doing is um, devising a protocol to test whether the activity of our neurons um, are involved in a, a reacquired task to the host. Uh, and that would, for the first time, prove that you know, replacements for the neocortex uh, work. So that'll be important as well. Um. For grafting or cellular um, replacement, what do you think must be done in the future to ensure the reliability or efficacy or like um, consistency of the, of the process? Or do you think we're already at a point where we can be very confident that if we do a certain procedure, we'll get our desired result? Um, yeah, no, I mean, you know, sort of the question of quality control and consistency mm -hmm. yeah. patients. There's, like I said, there's a lot of cell types involved. There's different ways. So, you know, there, there are two different approaches that would be uh, favored in, in treating patients. One is using uh, patient-derived cells, so iPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, which you may or may not have heard from, uh, but you can take someone's skin and derive these very uh, immature embryonic-like stem cells from their skin, and then from that generate any cell type of the body. So there are protocols for generating all the different cell types in the brain, but this process can be a little variable from patient to patient. Um, and, and so either you have to, you know, uh, streamline the, the quality control and checkpoints to make sure that in the end you have uh, uh, good cell types um, or another approach are, is using non-immunogenic 
uh, embryonic stem cells to make those cell types. And that would be more easy. And there, and there are uh, companies that are uh, working towards this because the nice thing about that is, is you can use the same cell source for all patients without worrying about uh, immune suppression or rejection. Uh, and there you could have, you know, aliquots. So the idea would have, you know, these, um, these kits of pre-mixed cells with scaffold uh, that, that gel at body temperature, so they're liquid beforehand. That's what we, we work with now. Uh, and that's how these biogels normally work. Like the most common one is called Matrigel. It's commercially available and it gels at body temperature. So you can work with it and then you put it in a, a warmer environment and it gels so that all the cells stay where they're supposed to. So we can relayer uh, the different cell types of the neocortex, for example. But we would have these, you know, kits that we send out to uh, doctors, for example, to repair damage. Um, um, and then there may be additional useful implementations to, because every, you know, every stroke is a different size. Every so there would need to be um, uh, a way of uh, adjusting accordingly, which is not hard to imagine, but you know, it needs to be taken into consideration. And then, like Nathan was saying, the brain is obviously such a complex organ, and the regenerative process can be sort of blunt in that you're introducing a large substrate and hoping that it takes. Uh, do we understand what the theoretical limits of what's achievable with the sort of regenerative medicine are? And do we imagine that it's possible to maybe boost cognitive function past normal human levels, where with regenerative medicine, you can get to superhuman levels of cognitive function? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I get asked that question a lot. And, and I think because we rely on the normal processes of, of developmental biology and differentiation of these cells without necessarily understanding everything they do in terms of wiring correctly, um, it's a little harder to imagine how we might enhance uh, you know, function without knowing, first of all, how the brain works and, and how function works. Um, because it's not simply a matter of adding more, you know, if it doesn't get wired correctly, it, it's not gonna be of any benefit and it could even be harmful in terms of disrupting function. Um, you know, there are certain parts of the brain where if they're dysfunctional, it's worse than if they were removed. You know, the cerebellum, for example, if it's dysfunctional, you get ataxia, you know, you have trouble controlling your movements. If you remove it, you'll eventually recover and you'll function pretty normally. Um, so um, it's, it's really important that if you're gonna try to enhance that you, you can really ensure that the wiring is going to somehow also enhance function. And, and that's, that's harder to imagine than just trying to replace what already exists, uh, but not impossible, right? I mean, in the future, of course, um, you, you will we'll understand a lot more and we'll be able to predict like, okay, if you add some tissue here that's connected in this way, you know, you'll be able to do this better. Yeah, I know you talked about this with Nathan a little bit, but would you say that the main bottleneck in this area of research generally is more the lack of understanding of the brain structure and where to insert substrate or is it the ability to insert the substrate where we're currently lacking? Or perhaps both? 
Um, yeah, no, it's more the ability to insert uh, functional substrate. So we don't have a functional substrate, you know, even, it, you know, this, there are simple examples that are in clinical trials now, which are great because they're paving the way for us, but, the, but they're not reestablishing the function of a, a tissue in a, in a certain part of the brain. Um, if you think of Parkinson's, so, so to answer your question, that's the biggest challenge, getting, getting really uh, functional tissue. Um, for Parkinson's, for example, the, neuron, the dopaminergic neurons that die, are, die in the substantia nigra, and the vast majority of, of doctors doing transplants of cells, dopaminergic precursors, to treat Parkinson's, which has had um, uh, quite a bit of success, transplant them in the wrong place. Not, I mean, they knowingly transplant them in the target of the neurons that died instead of the original location of where the neurons were in the substantia nigra. So they, they transplant them in, in the, the, the striatum or the putamen, which is the target of these dopaminergic neurons, where, these, you know, where the transplant neurons then you know, produce dopamine and that helps control movement. So even that is not, you know, you're not really rejuvenating or replacing the substantia nigra or the striatum, you're doing something a little weird. Another example, which is not quite in clinical trials, but should be within a year or so, is uh, interneurons in the neocortex. Um, they're very important for plasticity uh, for, you know, for, and for avoiding overactivity, which leads to uh, epileptic activity or seizures. And so some people have seizures and epileptic activity. So they're going to be putting in interneurons to try to uh, remedy that. And again, they've had very nice success in animal models. Um, so that's something to look out for. But again, it's not really replacing a whole tissue. It's just a cell type. Um, and so what we're proposing to do, the big bottleneck is, yeah, to make sure that our new tissue is, it functions normally for the neocortex, but that would apply for every other part of the brain as well. Um, in a slightly different direction, I suppose, um, embryonic stem cells appear to be a like, promising source of cells to assist in um, many transplantation processes. If cultured properly, they can be renewable, like a renewable source of cells. However, they also come with a slew of ethical considerations, um, including like when does human personhood start, the medical risk of oocyte retrieval and experimentation on human embryonic cells. So. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the matter? And do the research potential of these uh, stem cells outweigh their ethical concerns? Yeah, I mean, is it still really uh, controversial to use embryonic stem cells? I mean, it was never even disallowed, even in more conservative times. Um, because, you know, they are cells. You know, it's hard to equate them with a, a person. Um, you know, not, they don't even have neurons or anything. Um, <laughs> yeah. So... But, but no, I mean, I, it has been um, an issue, certainly in, you know, for, for NIH, there are, you know, all these approved uh, embryonic stem cell lines that you can use if you have federal funding. If you have private funding, you can use whatever ES cells you want. So that, that's not restricted. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I, I don't see an ethical issue if what you're doing is trying to taking something that is not sentient at all, not, not you know, um, and, and 
and using that just for repair and helping people live longer, healthier, you know, happier lives. Um, so to me, it's sort of unethical to not do that. But, yeah. I guess to ask the, the related question, you, t- you talked earlier in the interview about how one of the issues the field faces is that a lot of the political and private funding goes into more longevity research than regenerative medicine. Do you anticipate political opposition to the use of stem cells and other and other uh, sources that regenerative medicine is a field being an issue for the field long term, or do you think that the general trend is towards it becoming a non-issue? Yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, but I think it depends a lot on people. You know, I think politicians like to. They don't want to upset their base or their population that they represent to a large extent. So I think if the, I, I hope that the discussion will be, you know, amongst the broad population, and these things are not decided by politicians on their own who think they might know what people want. Um, so, yeah, it's an open question. And, and, you know, thanks to people like you for bringing up these issues, maybe to people that are more informed from the socio-political point of view than I am, but in terms of discussing these and and bringing them to people's attention. uh, I I don't think it's too early to to start having more open discussions uh, about this uh, more broadly in the population. Uh, And even, you know, um, uh, in choosing politicians, I mean, there's already some politicians who have expressed interest in longevity research, for example. And so hopefully they can also bring this up uh, as a a discussion point um, because of their reach. I know also on the more socio-political side, in terms of deployment, to my understanding, these techniques are not currently at a point where they can be comfortably used on patients in a very broad sense. Do you anticipate the rollout of these certifications into the broader medical practice first happening with stroke patients and the like where they've suffered a severe loss and you're trying to get it back? And then longevity uh, attempts will happen much after that once the public has gotten comfortable with these techniques being used for extreme loss patients? Or do you think it'll happen sort of in parallel or maybe even longevity stuff will come first? No, I think it's the first example, right? We, we have to show... Uh, proof that this, uh, this tissue works to repair stroke, for example, or other local injury before uh, considering uh, reversing dementia or you know, age, age-related deterioration of brain function. Um, and, and so, and I think that's a path that's gonna be very acceptable to people, right? You know, your, 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 uh, your parent or, or grandparent is, lost the ability to move half their body. And this gives them the ability to relearn how to be totally functional. I think that's, people are not gonna have a problem with that. At that point, you know, the, the follow through becomes more obvious. You can use this for dementia, reversing brain aging as well. Um, so I think that's the order that things, that's what we're planning. I mean, our first target right now uh, target indication in the clinic would be uh, stroke because it's the most common form of brain damage as well. Um, so, 
I know that asking scientists and researchers about timelines is often a fool's game, but is there a vague notion of whether this is a 50 to 100 years away type technology or a 10 to 50 years away type technology? Yeah, right. It is very difficult to uh, predict because uh, often things take a lot longer than one would have anticipated. And conversely, sometimes there's technological breakthroughs that speed things up in ways that we never could have imagined. Um, and so, yeah, it makes it very difficult to predict. <laughs> um, I think though, um, having said that, that with the proper backing uh, for something like stroke, we could get there to the clinics in five years. But this is with, you know, the prop proper backing so we can test everything in parallel. Um, and then, you know, for, again, for, for dementia or age reversal, you know, add, add at least 10 years to that. If we don't get backing, we just continue, you know, working on this at the pace we're working on it. Yeah, we'll be lucky if we get there in 50 years, you know. So I think it, it, it really matters um, how much interest we can generate from funders in this. Do you know roughly how large the field is at the moment? Uh, how many people are actively working on this problem? Well, so uh, maybe define that, this problem a little more. Or this problem in terms of, uh, you know, I guess both regenerative medicine more broadly and then specifically uh, the cell replacement techniques. Uh, that you and your lab are, are working on? For, for the brain specifically? Uh, for, yeah, for the brain specifically. Yeah, I mean, probably, I'd say at least 100 labs working on cell replacement approaches for the brain. Not necessarily in the context of um, longevity or you know, dementia or, or even Alzheimer's. Um, but the problem is most of those are, are in academic settings. And so they can only work on a little piece of the puzzle at once, you know, one particular cell type. Maybe they'll, they'll just be working on the vasculature or they'll just be working on excitatory neurons or inhibitory neurons. But what we need, and this is where the funding comes in, is a concerted effort to put all those cells together, you know, to remake uh, a complete functional tissue, which requires all those cells to be uh, in the right ratios at the right relative maturity states so that they interact the way they would during development and also uh, organized in the right cytoarchitecture. And essentially that's all we need to do. It's just, that's a lot of work. And these hundred labs are all working separately on their own piece of the puzzle. Uh, and, and so what we would like to do is, you know, bring that more of those more of that expertise together in one place with the real goal of, you know, in five years, we're going to have functional tissue, uh, neocortical tissue. And you mentioned that most of the hundred labs that are working on this are in academia, perhaps in government funded labs. How much of this work is taking place in the private sector, places like, you know, Celgene, and Thermo Fisher, Pfizer, whatever else? Or is this just too long to move a horizon for private money to make sense right now? Yeah, no, there, there's not much, but there are cell-based therapy uh, companies for the brain. 
Um, there's one, I mentioned one that, you know, is looking to go to clinical uh, trials soon enough with interneurons, but that's it. They're, so again, they're, they're working on a very specific problem that they can address within a relatively short period of time with the funding that they have. So they're targeting one cell type uh, in terms of replacing. This is true for uh, Parkinson's as well. There are companies uh, that have started, uh, that have been established for the treatment of cell-based uh, companies for the treatment of Parkinson's. But again, we're looking at a single cell type, in that case, dopaminergic precursors. Um, so, so even in the private sector, there isn't anyone who's been bold enough to look at you know, neocortical uh, tissue engineering. Uh, again, because it's a big project and you know, there's some unknowns and if it takes more than five years to go to clinics, you know, they're, they're very hesitant to embark. But there are great people out there, even in industry, who, who are very interested in what we're doing. So we're, we're, we're talking to them and you know, hopefully we're going to move forward in that direction. I see we're uh, just about at time. So I want to thank you very much for joining us uh, with this conversation, Dr. Hebert. Very interesting conversation. I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you, Nathan and Aditya. Um, is there any any place our listeners should follow you, follow your work, get more involved? Uh, any place where your listeners yeah. um, follow you or follow your work or get more involved in um, the fields that you are, you're interested in? Yeah, I mean, they can always reach out to me uh, on my website. Uh, easy enough to find if you just Google my name and, and the Institute Einstein. Uh, I'll probably come up pretty easily uh, with contact info. Uh, I also have a Twitter account, account at Replacing Aging, where the focus is more on the aging aspect of this, trying to inform the general longevity population to pay attention to tissue engineering. So anybody interested in that can can link to uh, the, the, to that Twitter uh, account. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. Take care. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.